Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 1, that's found on page 1,288 in your pew Bibles. We will be reading verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. James has at this time been circling through many different themes. He has been dealing much with the theme of persecution and trials. We saw that in the first couple verses where he talks about counting all as joy, even the trials that we, we face, because we, through them, gain a steadfast faith. That's how we are to count these trials, and he now circles back to this theme, but in a different way, focusing on trials through the lens of temptation and through God's role in even this. Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing upon it. Father in heaven, we approach you through your word. We confess uh, a, a truth so far beyond us, so a truth that would be audacious were it not so clearly taught in your word, that we are about to hear you speak. An inerrant word, an infallible word given here in a word so broken and so fallible and so errant comes a word of perfection. We pray that we would hear it that we would pay heed to it, and that we would not so dishonor you and your word by having it fall upon deaf ears, that we would receive it and follow and obey it. Let all that would be said be true according to your word, that there would be no falsehood stated, that in all you, your son, would be praised. We ask this in his name. Amen. James 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Sends the reading of God's word. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he gives a fictional account of two demons discussing how best to tempt others, a more experienced demon to a younger demon telling him ways and not all every way that you would think and how to best thwart God's plan and how best to thwart the saints. And in this conversation between the two of them, they take up the topic of prayer and discuss how best to thwart the prayers of the saints, how best to demoralize them in their prayers. And one of the demons says something I found very interesting. He says this, It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. 
I think that is a good depiction of the way we would view temptation, the way we would view the devil and his minions as they would come to us and and place a temptation in our minds, that they put something there that now we have to deal with. I think it's very insightful uh, in Lewis's part to see that actually, in many ways, the the devil and his demons might function is to keep things out of our minds. What do I mean by that in relation to this text? Well, here James talks about temptation, and he shows where temptation truly comes. And it isn't from without. It is from within. It is from our own desires giving birth to death. The sin's expression of death. And that is the temptation we face. And it is good that we be reminded of this, that we don't need to be tempted by a demon coming to put something in our minds. We are tempted by our own natures. And I also like this quote from Lewis because I think it fits well into this first chapter of James because what James is doing is trying to put something in our minds. And this is what the devil would have us not retain. How we understand God and his character. How we understand trials and suffering. How we understand temptation and our own sins. They would do whatever they can to keep that out. And we would be much the worse for wear that were the case, not be able to understand what is true. And so James takes up the topic again, how do we endure the trial? And in this case, that trial that is expressed especially through temptation. We don't always merge those two together. We'll talk about that later in the message, but we often try to keep those distinct as a trial is something that comes upon us and is not in our control, and we face it, and it was nothing that had to do with our sin, and a temptation is something that the devil's putting into us or that we're dealing with in our flesh, and yet James sort of merges these together, dealing with trials, even through dealing with temptations, and how do we think of God through that? So how do we endure these temptations, trials? How do we endure trials? We see in our text, James says, to see the crown, trust the character of God, and understand temptation. That's the point of our message this evening. How do we endure the trial? See the crown. Trust the character of God and understand temptation. There's no other way to face it. And as we begin with our first point, seeing the crown after the test. Seeing the crown after the test. This is a short point. It's a short point because James devotes only one verse to it. And it sort of undergirds everything he's about to say. James begins in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so James quite clearly and simply here is saying, when you face these trials, and even when you face your temptations, see the crown that lies on the other side of it. See what God is working on the other side that you will gain. And it's not just an amorphous crown that we could wear. It's really the crown of life itself. You'll notice in this text there's language of James that speaks of the way of the Lord as being the way of life. He even uses pregnant imagery, the, the imagery of conception, of procreation, and that it is God who produces life in his saints, but it is sin, temptation, that produces death. Sin, Temptation that take it away, that destroy. 
what will be the way to follow? And he would say, no, seek the crown of life that lies on the other side of that temptation, on the other side of that trial, no matter how hard it may be, on the other side, God is working something, and it is the very crown of life itself, the goodness of life. Not in the abundance of wealth, that's not what we mean. We mean by the full crown of life, what James means is all the blessings of Christ himself. Literally, union with God. That's life. Life and death in the Bible mean more than when a, when a corpse stops breathing. Death for our first parents was not that their physical bodies ceased to exist. It was not that their hearts stopped pumping, but they died when they ate the fruit because they were separated from God and were merged and joined in slavery to sin, and so they died. They experienced spiritual death. A life comes through that crown of life, through Christ himself. And that's to where we set our gaze. In the trial, in the temptation, in what we face, there is life on the other end, so see it through the trial. The full glorification of God comes. In trials and temptations, we see that God does test faith. He doesn't test faith because he likes making it difficult. He does what any good teacher does. A test is designed for the growth of the student. A test is designed that we would produce greater faith and thus endure and then receive the crown. You see, what James is not saying here is that through our works we would merit the crown. No, the crown is a gift reserved by God for the ones who love him, but the crown is awarded to those who endure. And what is that endurance? That's perseverance of the faith, that very activity that God works in us, and he works it in us through working in our own minds and hearts, heeding this word to look after, to look through the trial, to look past this world to a crown of life that awaits. It's all hope that we have, and this is a huge step for us to see. In trials and temptations, to view it as another opportunity for the genuineness of our faith to stand out. That instantly sanctifies everything we face. That instantly sanctifies every hardship to see all of these things as tests and means for which our true faith to not only stand out and display its character, but grow. We don't approach trials with glee. We approach it with that determination. Here is the next task. The next test by our loving Lord who gives good gifts. Even in the trials and temptations, he has a plan. And that's where James has us direct our thoughts. Seeing the crown after the test. Seeing the crown through the test. So that's the short, short point by which he begins. But then he delves into this. And that's when we reach our second point where we'll look the bulk of this message at trusting God's good character. That's our second point, trusting God's good character. So first we see the crown after the trial and temptation, but how do we do that? Seeing God's good character. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This is why I drew our attention to verse 4 in Psalm 5, that our God is not a wicked God. Our God is a God of good character. And where we'll naturally go in temptations and trials, 
in them both is in doubting God. That's the greatest, that's the greatest temptation any of us could fall to in a sin or a trial, in a temptation or a trial, is to doubt God himself. And James is saying, don't doubt the character of God in what you face. That's where we're apt to go. To doubt him, to doubt his plan. Trials and temptations, though, are what God does use. That we could draw nearer to him. That we could see his good character. This is where we're getting at. Trials and temptations are not mutually exclusive. No temptation you face is one that's not a trial. Or I should say it a different way. Every temptation you face is a trial. And no trial will come to you that does not also bring with it temptations. In whatever form. Some of them might seem to reach more, ca- more the category of temptations and our fleshly desires and wants. Yet even in that temptation, we notice it's a trial. We are afflicted with a temptation. We are afflicted with our own sinful natures. And we fight against it in a grievous trial. And when we face the trials of life, as James' own audience was, as they were likely on the run, as they were likely away from home, outcasts, Sojourners in other lands, they had spread abroad. They're the dispersion, as he says in verse 1. Well, in this trial comes temptation as well. Temptation to say the Lord doesn't know what he's doing, or the Lord has got this wrong, or temptation to give it all up, to turn away. The temptation, maybe not to reject God himself, but to despair and to say these years have been too long and too rough, and we can't stand anymore. This trial was too acute It's too painful. We don't know what to do. That's a temptation. You see how both a trial that we did not cause and a temptation that may even arise up within us are fought. And fought in very similar ways. Trusting in the good character of God. And so James says, our God is not a God who tempts. What's the difference between tempting and testing? Tempting is done for the purpose of bringing about sin. Tempting is done with a goal in mind, a failure, a rejection of God, disobedience to God's word and his law. That's temptation, and that is not what God does. Testing is done for the benefit of the test taker. To be sure, God places tests in our pathway, but there is never a bad ulterior motive. Nor is he ever bringing to us a trial that we can't endure. We, some of us especially, need to hear that. God never ordains a trial too great for his grace to overcome in us. God never ordains a trial that we would not be able to endure in grace through what he's given to us. That's the difference in trusting a good character God and thinking of a God who might tempt or who might thwart us. When God tests, it is so that we may pass the test and inherit the blessing. That's what he does. He then goes on, James goes on to explain how temptation and evil are incompatible with God's very nature. James is really saying here, this is another way of saying it. So what we're looking at as the theme of our message is that we're to see the crown, trust the character of God, and understand temptation. Another way of what James is saying is that you, would to, you are to be so affected by the goodness of God that anything in your life 
that isn't praiseworthy, you would abhor. To be so affected by the goodness of God, to understand His good character, His perfect attributes so well, and to have that so firmly in your mind, that were you to be tempted in a trial to despair, you trust in the goodness of your God. Or were you to be tempted through sin and the flesh, you would never want to do anything so unpraiseworthy as to harm or to hurt this God who is so good. That is what James is saying. Be so affected by God's goodness that you hate whatever is suggested about God or displayed in your actions that isn't praiseworthy. Sin's goal in trial or temptation is to seek what isn't praiseworthy, either in what we believe about God and doubting Him or also in falling to temptations. And we like to try and evade that blame sometimes try to evade it. I think that's why James is addressing his own congregation in this way. Don't doubt God in your trials. Don't blame him for your sin. He is the God who tests and doesn't tempt. He is the God who gives good gifts, as our text says. He is the God who, as our text says as well, is our making us into first fruits creating us new by the power of his word. That is what our God does. So don't despair in the trial, nor give in to the temptation. This is so important. I want to look a little deeper at that, a little deeper into the way we make distinctions between trials and temptations, and often how we seek to run away from blame when trials come, when trials that may not be our our fault come. We can obsess about whether our problem is physical or spiritual. We can obsess about whether the cause of our difficulty is exterior to us and someone else's fault, or if it's our own and then we have to deal with it. That's the way we look at it. And so if it's a hardship, if it's something that's oppressing us, that's difficult, that makes us doubt God, but we didn't cause it, then we're far more apt to think things of God we shouldn't. We're far more apt to say, you see, I didn't do that. I didn't deserve that. What is God doing? Is his character truly good? Or we're apt to see the trial and not fight it spiritually. And this is important. Sometimes when things happen to us, we're all, we're, all we do is respond. We just respond in a way that we, rea- we react to it. Something bad happens and we're sad and we despair, or we don't trust in God, or whatever it is, and we think, well, that's just the natural way of responding to such a trial. Yet we fail to realize that in every trial is a spiritual battle. We fail to realize that you could face something physically that causes a trial, and yet then be brought into a spiritual battle. Let's take a cause that we all fear. Some of us go through, are going through, our families are going through a, a, a cancer diagnosis. Were you to receive that diagnosis, that is not your fault. Nor did you cause it. And you know that God ordained it. And so then we want to question how. And when we know that God ordained this trial, and we don't think we had anything to do with it, we are much more apt than to respond in unbiblical ways and to allow ourselves to be those who despair or grumble or complain. 
Yet we need to understand that with these trials, something that we didn't cause, now we have a spiritual battle to face, a temptation to fight, temptation to trust, to endure. We might feel depressed or sad, and the physical ailment may not be our fault, might not be our fault of our decision-making or thinking, and yet now we have to exercise in a test for God our faith to spiritually respond well to the trial. Exterior circumstances bring with them spiritual battles and tests from the Lord. Here's another example. Someone dressed immodestly is not your fault, but the internal temptation to lust is now a spiritual battle. You can't cut yourself any slack and say, I didn't do that, I didn't cause that, I just saw it. But how you respond is responding to the test. You may not have caused the health problem to you or to your loved one, but now you might face anxiety and distrust. And does that mean you're allowed to be anxious and distrusting because it wasn't your fault? No. Respond well to that, or we seek to respond well to that. You see, in these ways, God ordains the test to allow us to fight the temptation and to grow. And we need to be aware of both physical causes, the problems that we face so we can deal with them, but we need to especially be aware that every trial and every physical cause brings with it a spiritual battle, no matter the cause. James wants his audience to be mature. That's why he writes. We said in the beginning of chapter 1 that the reason James is writing is so that his people would follow the Lord, that they would grow closer to Christ. That's his goal, to mature their faith. Our growth and maturity depends on our response and the use we make of our circumstances. I'm going to say that again because that's so important. Our growth and maturity depends on our response and the use we make of our circumstances. Trials become temptations. Every circumstance we meet becomes a temptation and a test. And requires a decision. Will we persevere and trust in God or fail the test and give up into sinful desires, despair? We need to fight it. To fight this, we must know that God can't be tempted with evil. That's why this point is so vital. We delved into this and temptation, and the whole answer there is that God is not evil, nor does he tempt us. There is a reason for the test he brings. How do we know the goodness of his character? It's Christ himself. Trusting the character of God is nothing other than trusting Christ. He sent, trusting in the Father who sent his Son. If we should doubt that God would give us a crown on the other end of this test or trial, we devalue that, that sacrifice that Christ made that is of incalculable worth. So far beyond anything that we deserve and yet Christ came to give it. God's good character, in other words, is shown most clearly through Christ. Don't doubt God. That's what James is saying. Don't doubt God and the test he brings. He's already sent Christ. He's given you the answer. He's given you life and not death. He's given you growth that you might draw nearer to him. So be so affected by God's goodness that we abhor whatever is suggested about God that is not praiseworthy. How do we endure the trial? See the crown. 
but trust the character of God who ordains all these things. And now our third and final point, understand the nature of temptation. Understanding the nature of temptation. The logical progression. So if God is not the source of evil and sin, and, and we yet sin, then what's that source? And verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What a description of temptation. One that is designed for us to quake a bit. That we would be caught up short and to realize this is in all of us, the capacity to sin and to go down this path, to fall into temptation, to, di- to just push away God's tests, thinking that they're just trials or whatever they are, to push them away and to fall into sin, not respond correctly, throw any chance of growing through this circumstance away. That's the opposite of James' desire. So he provides this very true, very scary picture of what temptation is, and first that it arises in our own hearts. It's our own. We all should be so affected by this. When we are lured and enticed by our own desires, we like to call ourselves, or we, we act like victims. We're professional victims, blaming everyone and everything else, even wanting to bring, blame God himself, and yet our sin our fault. Temptation arises within us. We claim passivity as if things are just done to us by another. It's my spouse's fault. It's my friend's fault. It's that person's fault. Our sinful responses are those responses of a sinful nature within us. We are lured and enticed by our own desire, conceiving sin. And what's the end of sin? What does James say is that end? What does it give birth to? That whole conception process. Here comes the temptation of our flesh. It's conceived and then it's nurtured by us. We nurture it and hold it dear. We don't let it go. We don't think of the good character of God. We don't turn to Him all of our sin. We nurture it. But what will that give birth to? What will that produce? Death. All sins in that way are a little picture of death itself. We better understand this battle to see the crown through the trial, to trust the character of God, and to understand temptation, to understand that it's in us. This verse isn't meaning that desire is not also a sin. This verse is not saying sin isn't sin until it's produced outwardly. It's describing a progression, the process of temptation. It begins with desire, it entices, and it gives full expression and maturity to that hideous conception and birth of death itself. As the next verse will say, are we to respond? Well, do not be deceived. The deception of sin is that there is joy and fulfillment there. That's how we're enticed. We're enticed by what those screw tape demons would have us not know, would have us kept out of our minds, that God gives good gifts, and we are enticed instead when we think the good gifts lies through the temptation. We would never give in to temptation if we did not think and convince ourselves that that was the better way. That there's true, true enjoyment and fulfillment in that way and not following God's way and rather giving in to that temptation. 
And sin whispers in our ears. Our own flesh whispers in our ears. That's the way. That's the fulfillment. That's the desire. Just, just lash out in anger and you'll feel better. Just lust and fulfill that and you will be happy. But as James says, the birth process of sin isn't life. That's what sin promises. Sin promises life, but it gives death. So sin keeps giving us that same deceit. It seeks, it sinks, it's deeper and deeper. And we have to go further and further down pathways of temptation, thinking, well, the, the, the true good thing, the true good life is just on the other end of that failure. Just on the other end of that affair, just on the other end of that greed and wealth, just on the other end of whatever, whatever you look to. Heed the warning of James. Sin disguises itself and deceives. But for those who trust in the Lord, there is a crown of life. And that's the answer. Verses 16 to 18 return to trusting in the character of God. Verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In contrast to the sin that does change, to the sin that there is variation, there is no truth. There is no consistency. In contrast to that is a God who is consistent perfectly of a good character. The Father of lights, that's describing his creative power Every perfect gift is from him, coming down from above. This is the God that we must trust. The Christian fights against temptation, becoming experts in thought transformation, being able to recognize the deception that sin can bring true fulfillment, recognizing that, that deception and instead looking for true life in Christ. Enduring testing and temptations is only achieved in constant thirst for the goodness of God. We replace that call of sin with a desire for God himself. Don't doubt the character of God. God is a good giver. Do we believe that? Can we look on our lives and say that, that we trust that? One of the advice given to counselors in biblical counseling is to ask their, those, who, those who they're counseling to say, if there's one thing in your life that you could change, that you think would bring you happiness, what would it be? That's a way of getting at, well, what's, what's really the, the center of their life? What's really the, the portion that's most, most in, in, in injury right now? What would they have changed? What do they value most? When we ask ourselves that question, would we have a whole host of answers? Would we want to change so many things? Would we doubt the character of God in all that we face? And I say this carefully because there is sin in the world and there is curse in the world and God is not the originator of these things. He did not author sin, though he did ordain it. There's a difference. Without calling God the author of sin or even the author of all the negative things you face, we do know there's a biblical way to face those things. That's the whole point why we went into the fact that what you face, no matter what it is, brings with it a spiritual battle. So saying this carefully, do we trust that God is a good giver when our marriage is what we would have it be? 
let's say it's stronger, when we would actually change the one we were married to. That was in our heart. That's a sinful response. And we trust the good character of God when we have wayward children. That's a hard one to wrap your head around. You see, saying that God is a good giver and a giver of perfect gifts isn't meaning that all of those things, like wayward children or unhappy marriages, are good. That's not the point. The point is that even in the midst of those sad things, those broken things, even those sinful things, those things you can't control is a good giver who gives you a crown of life who doesn't place you in any of those trials or tests and forsake you. And say, deal with that yourself. Our God is so good. And it's in listening to that sinful temptation voice that we doubt Him. We all do. God is not so great in our minds because of our sinful natures that we follow and listen to the doubt that we allow to creep in, or even just ignoring it all and acting as if everything we face is just broken and bad. Is that the picture James gives for how Christians are to respond or to instead grieve appropriately but trust appropriately? Face the pain of this world and it brings plenty. Face the temptations of this world and they're going to come. But know that through it all lies Christ, crown of life. That's the hope. And it's all grounded on the character of our good God. With that in us, we can face it. I know many of you are sitting here thinking, no, it's gone too far. It's too hard. But God's word is here to say, no, it's not. Endure, trust in the good God who gives perfectly. Because one day, no matter what you're facing now, one day, you will look back on this, and there won't even be a part of you that questions what he was doing. There won't be a part of you that questions that God was not good in all the things that he did, even to you, for you, and in your life. What a God we have. A God who makes us first fruits. That's how we end that great truth. All of it is God making us a kind of first fruits. First fruits are the, the, the best, the ones reserved, the portion preserved, given to those who deserve it most, given, given to those who are most close, the first fruits. That's what he calls us as people. Praise our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us all these things. Praise our Father who has given Christ to us. Be the perfect gift giver of the perfect Christ himself. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you. We bow before you to extol your great name. To extol you knowing that Without you, we could not stand. 
to extol your name knowing that we face temptations and desires and failures, to understand that through it all you cause us to endure and have promised a crown of life itself, the very blessings of Jesus to those who remain steadfast in faith, and yet even that is a gift that you preserve in us. And so we pray, Lord, so preserve it. Preserve it through your ordained means by having us heed your word and acting on it, by looking at trials and tests and even temptations of sins as a test to draw us nearer to you to praise your name. We say this all in Christ's dear name. Amen.